Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 29, The Nick, season 1 from 2014. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And real hot take out of the gate here, guys. I don't know if you're going to agree with it this much. While The Nick is not my favorite thing Soderbergh has done, I might argue it's his best thing he's ever done. Wow. Yeah, that's burning. I'm burning up over here. It's good. It's very good, which is not surprising, but I was surprised how much I liked it. I kind of love it. Like, I think it's a great show. You know, aside from just being like an awesome period drama, there's lots of cool stuff going on here as well. But I had tried to watch an episode before and I couldn't. Like, it was too strong. Uh, I got over some of those things. We'll get into why and all that kind of stuff, the surgery. But is it his best thing? I mean, it's definitely his most ambitious thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, the only thing as big I feel up to this part is either the Oceans trilogy, if you count that as a thing, or Che 1 and 2, like the lengths he went for something like that. I definitely think it's awesome. It's a great accomplishment. You might be right. I'm just not sure yet. I wonder if we have to see season two to know. I had a, a similar thought, though, which is that while I don't know that I would rank this among in the like top five best TV shows ever made, it's maybe one of my favorite. For all the blood and guts in this show, I'm going to watch this again for sure. And as I was looking at our ranking of the movies, I was thinking, where would I put this if this was a movie? And it would be really high up there, like in maybe in the top five. My notes on this show uh, consist of the title, The Nick Season 1, and then it just says, holy shit. That's all I wrote. And I just (laughs) watched the show. And some episodes I watched more than once. I just, I really, really, really dug it. I just wrote down quotes because there's so many good quotes (laughs) in the series that, like, even out of context, even if I don't remember what the context was, uh, they are just great. So, first of all, you guys are both babies for getting sick to your stomach over the surgery stuff. Well, no, we're not, because... I was a champion. It tapers off, for sure, as the series goes, or you just get used to it. I knew that it, it sort of bothered you, so I, I always laughed when like they would go from like a scene like you know them talking to an office to like smash cut to Thackeray cutting someone's arm off. I'm just like I can't like I I was just imagining the two of you like watching me like oh god like there's no warning sometimes, which is the point. Going from you know the minutia the day to day of like how do we get money for an X-ray machine, smash cut to sawing a guy's arm off. I felt like I was assaulted on the front end of this series way more than the back end, just in the sense of the graphic nature of what it's going to be. I think it tries to prepare you for the worst up front. Like, it opens with that previa operation, and that is just gory and horrifying for me. And the first episode ends with him injecting cocaine into his penis. They don't show it, but you think about it and you feel it. And as a man, it it hurts without even seeing it. I mean, there's just... Into his sex, not into his penis, (laughs) into his sex. I feel like it, A, is trying to acclimate you quickly to the horrors of the day-to-day of these surgeries because to them, you know, it's what they have to deal with. Also to say, to get it, to kind of get it over with early on, I feel like it is strongest in the first few episodes, and I think they make a point of being graphic uh, necessarily. Well, this is also a TV series where like, I don't know, a dozen babies die in the first season. So many babies die, like in, in so many different ways. Like it's terrifying and haunting and gruesome in like every way across the board. 
it also shows us the, the kind of industry that has grown up around dead babies to not to put too fine a point on it. When the there's one of the surgeons has in, sort of accidentally infected his infant daughter and she dies. And, and then there's a, a scene we have where there's a, a death photographer where they've dressed up the baby as though it's still alive and they're taking a picture of that. And that is the creepiest baby I've ever seen in a TV show or a movie, like that dead baby. Yeah, and the only one that's creepier is the one when that when that woman kills the next kid, freezes, drowns this kid in an ice bath. Like the show is full of these sort of gory moments or, or body horror, gruesome, gruesome moments. You know, that same mother who killed the second child gets where John Hodgman has taken out all her teeth. Love it. Love which it. is amazing and horrific and, and horrific and very specific and true to history in most cases ways. That is part of, I think, the charm of the show, right? Yeah, that's the scariest thing to me those are the scariest thoughts going through my head is that this is the best it was and you've got like quacks running around and people playing with the x-ray machines and yes putting their heads in front of it for oh that'll take about an hour like okay i'll just stand here with some x-rays attacking my brain for an hour like i mean it's weird because of how incredibly smart and on the forefront these doctors are and yet still how society and like the normal people they're very far behind you know like the average person and the doctor there is an immense gap of knowledge to realize like not too long ago the conditions that people had to live in is kind of terrifying yeah this is advanced medicine right for the time there this is all cutting edge stuff and i i mean that that pun literally and that's it is that's what's part of what's terrifying yeah the tagline either for the show or maybe just the first season or something is modern medicine had to start somewhere and it really takes that to heart i think and you're right mike not only are these guys like you know on the forefront but like you also have like the the raving lunacy of clive owen who if he just partnered like thackeray thackeray partnered with dr zinberg to do the blood stuff you know like that girl would be alive and like maybe they would have figured it out by now but like at times it feels like the inmates are running the asylum You know, I do want to say, why I mentioned Thackeray, I mentioned to you guys how last year I watched Deadwood and I hated it, much to both of your chagrin. I, like, there was very little that I enjoyed about that show. This, to me, checked off all the boxes I wanted Deadwood to check off, while also combining some of my favorite things from House. And it was like if House and Deadwood had a baby, like, you took House and you, like, the actual character of Dr. Gregory uh-huh. House, and you threw him in sort of, like, a little bit after, like, post-Deadwood era, and you gender-swapped Cuddy so that she was, like, this sniveling man who was always broke. There's, like, the, the parallels here felt comfortable and familiar, but also new and exciting. Like, everything just came together and worked so well, I think. I hear you there. Like, Deadwood, for me, is just sort of like a first love. Like, I definitely, I'm biased towards that for sure as a show. But I hear what you're saying. Like, I got what I like out of Deadwood, out of this show. I think that's why I like the show. I feel a commonality there. Like, this isn't, this is only like 20 or so years after Deadwood. Not too much time, but the advancements are crazy. I think the thing about Deadwood for me is just that it's on the frontier, you know? Like, they're out there in the West, and that's the difference to me. Here, we're in the metropolitan New York. 
the setting is probably the major difference here, but the feel is similar. They weave in sort of famous historical figures and inventions in quite the same way, like Deadwood, you know, photography camera shows up in this show, like at the end of episode one, the hospital gets electricity, you know, so I, I like the way that this show weaves in like actual things, you know, Typhoid Mary, that was yeah, that right. was very unexpected. Those touches those flourishes definitely help build this world so that when you get a character like Thackeray, I had to go look him up if he was real or not. You know, like he feels very dimensional. He's got a lot going on. The whole cocaine addict was an angle I was not expecting this show to embrace. The working addict, the tortured genius that feels like he has to keep going and self-medic, like that whole stuff for me is maybe what elevates this show as opposed to just being like a medical drama. Like they're really sort of getting into the toll that this work takes on someone. I mean, that's what House was too. House was addicted to painkillers. Like it's the same kind of character. Yeah, so House, so the the backstory of House's characters, he had some leg injury and like it, the, he had surgery on it and it did, like you find this out like I think midway through the series and like it never healed right and so he's addicted to painkillers the entire series and so like that feels like I mean, Thackeray was based on, I think, a combination of like, two or three different guys, from what I read, I think. Two or three different sort of prominent New York City physicians of the era. But it also feels like they took sort of the spirit of House, and not in a way that like feels like they stole it, but like sort of like a, let's see what this would be like in another place. And like, it feels sort of referential, but also different enough. And like, I don't know. And like, we see his peaks and valleys all the way to the end where he's in detox. And now, you know, to get unhooked or, you know, get the detox from cocaine, he's now going to become addicted to heroin, which is, you know, I think we all sort of knew that was coming, like when they don't show you what's what it right, is. Right. But like that kind of character arc is definitely like absolutely the same thing. Because like on house, like he goes through withdrawals and it impacts his work and everything like that. And so like that wasn't brand new and unique, but I still thought it worked really well. Yeah, there's so much about this show that works. And I, I think we need to make sure that we also call out the creators of the show, the two writers, Jack Emil or Emil and Michael Begler, because as I remember the sort of origin story of the show, they had written the script and then the sort of script floated across Soderbergh's desk when he'd started retirement. And first thing he read, he's like, oh, OK, I'll read this script for this pilot. And he's like, I have to make this show. And they do a wonderful job of something that a show for me, like Deadwood, although clearly not for Joey, does also, or, or any really truly great period show, is that it makes it feel very modern. It makes it feel like they're not actually that different from us, right? This, these aren't people in costumes prancing around. These are people wearing clothes, like I wear clothes, and getting up like I get up, and cutting people up like I, well, not like I cut people up, but, but they're sort of doing, they're sort of living and breathing in a real world. And I think part of it is the direction, part of it is the great, great score, the very, very contemporary score, but also it has to do with the way these characters were conceived and the way that they were written and the way that their arcs play out in ways that feel like they're so many of them are struggling with things that people struggle with today. It's just that they're doing it, you know, in 1900. Thackeray is an amazing character and he's not even my favorite character on the show, you know? I think he's yeah. fantastic. He's just written to be so smart. Like, it just floors me every time. Like, especially in the first two or three episodes when Algernon will, like, say something and Thackeray be like, oh yeah, I know that. Or like, he'll, you know, retort it back and be like, oh, you mean this? Or you mean this? Or this? And it's like, he's all these steps ahead of everybody. It's crazy. And by the end, you realize why, you know, Bertie 
won't leave his side and why he's considered a true mentor to these people and everything. It's just like the characters are just really, really rich. I don't know. I'm, I mean, I really haven't dove into a show like this in a long time. Like you could say binge because I pretty much binged this, this show. So I haven't really spent this much time with a show in a long time. And like, I don't know, I just I really ended up connecting with just about everybody here because of the depth to everybody. They're multidimensional. Well, that's what I think works better about this than it does on Deadwood is that the women actually have something to do. You know what I mean? No, like, my problem fair. with that's Deadwood is fair. that. But no, no, but it is fair, though. To my eyes, it was like Deadwood cared about four white dudes and everyone else got like the secondhand shaft. Like, that's what it felt like to me. Whether or not you see it a different no, that way. That may be true. Yeah, yeah. I, I, t- I buy that. I buy that. Like, it cared about Timothy yes, Oliphant. Yes. It cared about Ian McShane. It cared about the guy who ran the hotel. And like, everybody else could sort of come and go as they please. Here, when they cut to the nun and the ambulance driver, like yeah, these like yeah. third or fourth tier characters, you're like, oh, this is like a scene that matters because I care about these characters. And like, Thackeray doesn't have to be in the scene with them and like matter of fact like most times he's not like they just exist in their own world like they're in the yeah. world of the nick but they're doing their own thing and everybody has a purpose and everybody has drive and goals and things that they like and things they don't like and things that they still do even though they don't like and justifications for those things and like the nun is like the most in- like the nun is I mean I don't want to keep putting down Deadwood I'm going I'm to move on from this but like the nun is a more interesting female character to me than any woman on Deadwood and she's only in like maybe 25 minutes of the 10 hours here the fact that she's able to justify that she is this woman of God yet also not only pro-abortion but the one conducting the abortions the fact that she has this like whole thought process that is articulated in a really, really limited amount of screen time is just incredible. Again, yeah, I don't want to spend a long time on Deadwood. I think you're leaving out Calamity Jane. I think you're leaving out the worst character. Oh my god! Listen, this is the part of this is your is your taste, and that's that's fine. I that's that's totally fine. I'm not like I don't want to argue that with you again. But I I do think you're right. I think that one of the amazing things about this show is that every time it cut to a new character, or not not a new character, but cut cut to a different character out of one scene, I was so happy to be with them. It's hard for me to even think of a movie where that's been true. Scene to scene and i guess maybe not necessarily just in soderbergh's career but certainly on tv or or in a lot of films like you'll cut to sub, a subplot and you'll be like okay this is fine but we're just sort of you know i want to get back to the main action and i was invested in all of these characters at every point that we went with them that's why i had the only that one note because it was just sort of it just sort of sucked me in this feels like such a unique show doesn't it as much as it maybe yeah maybe it feels a little bit like house set in 1900 but it's felt to me like so much more than that it felt so so specific and so unique to its aesthetic to all this, this kind of handheld quality to a lot of the shots, to the race relations, to the the medical ethics, and as well as the drug addiction stuff. I've talked on the show before about how drug arcs are one of my kind of least favorite tropes in movies and TV. Like I get bored with it real quick. And somehow he found a way to keep me invested in those scenes. There were a couple times when Thackeray is, the addiction is getting to him. And there are these scenes where like spend a long time just on his face, like a really, really, yes. really close close up and it's kind yep. of a jittery camera and there's all this other stuff going on in the scene but you never leave his face like the way that he can't escape you know, the itch he's got and it's just marvelously done I, I felt like I understood him in ways that very often I think people treat filmmakers treat drug addiction sort of like a, oh this is a cool way to do this instead of like oh let's get into how this really feels psychologically and emotionally for this character I was with him the whole time which is you know a testament to the show 
and I made notes about that too because there's the times like there's the one time where they're at the board meeting right and like yeah. it's probably like a two or three minute shot like a single pan around and he's not talking he could not care less about what's being discussed we <laughs> yeah. hear basically five or six different other voices in the room talking about whatever they're talking about and we just see his face and then like the camera goes behind somebody's back and like we still don't cut even though we can't see him we're still on him and it's just like that and then like a couple scenes later i think they might be at that presentation and it's the same episode where there's a cocaine shortage because there's the war in the philippines and he can't get the drugs he needs to just sort of get by and so it's just like how hammers it home but like it works and it's so effective yeah I, I think he does a really good job of establishing us in the world with a lot of the handheld stuff and and the shallow focus and it makes us feel like we're really there like we're running down the hall with the nurse or something like that but then he's able to use camera work to get inside the heads of these characters so well and switch back and forth so easily like the focus of the scene sometimes, like I noticed this more maybe earlier on in the series, like there'll be a scene going on and it'll all rest on Nurse Lucy or there'll be a scene going on and it'll all be on Barrow, you know, from just a shot of him while other people are talking. And it's just really interesting to just say, maybe you want to see it from this character's perspective or that character's perspective. And then he'll go and do something like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was so awesome. So the end of episode three, when we see Algernon get into his first fight, he picks his first fight in the back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is one of the most creative fight scenes I've ever seen, and I just, it blew me away. I must have watched it like two or three times. Just the way that it's like behind his head, almost third person, and blurry and like locked on to him so that when he moves, the camera moves. It was just so creative. Like it just put you right into that fight like I'd never felt before, you know? So the technical work here on display is just like astounding, you know? It's like all of that slick ocean stuff, and then it's all of that other sort of artsy stuff but it's it's got a nice balance and it all looks, it looks gorgeous, gorgeous too yeah. i mean like there's just everything is so nice what i also made note of is that he's also embracing the medium and the platform he's using in that not only is he showing this graphic i mean not that he's writing it but like he's you know yeah, focusing yeah. on this grisly violence language is all over the place but like i think literally the first shot of the series we see two fully naked asian prostitutes just walk toward the camera it's just like oh right like we're on <laughs> cinemax right. anything yeah. goes here the rest of the series, there is like a fair amount of nudity not as much as you would almost expect on a pay channel but like it's all kind of tasteful like it's not as graphic as it could be like he sort of did things like i know that i can do this but like i'm just going to sort of restrain myself and like when you see it for instance when you know algernon and cornelia have their little affair and you see her naked it's like oh like this means something there's the prostitutes and sometimes like when they're doing the you know the testing on them for the the new procedure for the premature babies like that i think they're naked they're sort of for comic effect because like birdie runs and he's just like oh like i don't know what's going on right, here right. but like whatever I feel like most of the rest of the show, after that opening scene where he's just like, yep, I can do this if I want to do this, everything here is going to be for a reason. It's a special moment, or it's, you know, Thackeray and Nurse Elkins have sex a whole bunch of times, and I don't know if you see her naked. She's, like, not wearing clothes, but she's always, like, hidden behind things. And I think that sort of goes back to what, Tobin, you've been saying for a bunch of movies now, that, like, he shoots intimacy well, and, like, you don't need to see boobs to, like, get what's going on in the scene. I feel like other Cinemax shows might just show that just to show it because they can and because their audience wants to see it. But he's like, well, it doesn't really add anything here. 
Yeah, he finds really unique ways to do it. I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be with these pay cable networks that there was a sort of spoken or unspoken requirement of the number of graphic shots that you needed to have per episode, which is part of why sometimes it, they feel thrown in because they were. What this feels to me a little bit is like he's he's finding very unique ways to do that. It's very rare that you see a naked body in an erotic moment. When Algernon's having his affair and and you see her naked, she's she's just sitting there in a chair smoking, right? Like it's after the fact. Yep. It's a it's a postcoital scene. And that's as you say, you took the words right out of my mouth. This is there's all kinds of intimacy in this show. And that's one of the most intimate scenes. And they're not like they're not having sex in the scene. They're as close as they're gonna be to one another, you know? And I think it's 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 sort of beautiful. And you're right, he always it always seems to have some kind of strategic narrative purpose, even if that narrative purpose is to make Bertie feel uncomfortable. For me, what I got was he's using Cinemax power to show the surgery stuff. Like for me, I feel like that's what he's more interested in yes, exploiting yes. in the right. show. Like that's the gratuitous stuff. Like that's the stuff that needs to be hammered home and said, no, this is the day to day. Like this is what these guys see all the time. All of like the sex stuff, you know, we only really see like the gratuitous nudity when it's paid for. Like that's the way I kind of see it. Like anytime it's intimate, as opposed, except for that one scene with Algy and Cornelia. Yeah, uh, except for that one scene when they're having the affair. The other time we see her naked is when she's getting the abortion. You know, and it's right. very right. sort of uncomfortable. And even then, she's much more covered and stuff. So and she's bathed in shadow too. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it was almost like if I have to show it, like let's try make it as tasteful as possible because there's a lot of other upsetting stuff that would upset the censors or viewers going on and yeah so that's sort of how i came down on that and what i like about sort of the upsetting stuff is that like it fits thematically like i was i was trying to figure out if like the things being covered here especially the things that are sort of more special focus and sort of more like pushing the envelope like you know in terms of racism and drug addiction and everything I was trying to figure out if it, like, lined up with the kinds of themes he'd been doing before, and I think that he's sort of done, like, kind of the outsider thing, you know, going way back to the beginning, like, people sort of feeling like they don't fit in with the world, uh-huh. and I mean, we see Algernon, like, we're seeing through the eyes of racism, he doesn't fit in at the hospital, and then he goes back to the hotel, and he's, like, so much better off than everybody there that he doesn't fit in there either, and, like... It's got to be the worst. And like the one time, or like the one place that he feels at home is when he's with Cornelia. And like, that's a love that can't be. He's this guy who liked James Spader in Sex Lies or, you know, the kid in King of the Hill or whatever. You know, he's not, he's more actually isolated from the world. Like people like literally hate him to his face. But it's also this like inner turmoil that I feel lines up exactly with like what we've seen a lot of the way through a lot of what Soderbergh does. I mean, he's not like the star, like it's Thackeray show, but he's the more interesting character by far, I think. Yeah, he's my favorite character. I think for all of those reasons that, that you just mentioned and more, I feel the weight of everything more through his character, I guess. Like, Thackeray is amazing, and, you know, he's also very much, like, an outsider because of just his incredible intellect, you know? Like, he's just on this pedestal. Like, he walks around like Danny Ocean, but then in private, he's curled up in a ball 
crying right. to himself. It's insane the separation that he imparts on himself towards others. Whereas with Algernon, it's like he only wants to share and other people are imposing their separation on him. So like, it's really interesting the way the show is working through the eyes of all these different viewpoints and shifting through them sort of with ease. You know, and then even we get with with the nun. What an amazing contradiction that character is. And for Cleary to be the one, maybe the one guy on the whole show who's the most comfortable with himself, for him to be giving the commentary on that is just really great. It's just so eye-opening. Yeah, Algie is such a fascinating character. Tell me if you guys agree with this. The way I view it is sort of like he's the hero of the show and Thackeray's the protagonist of the show. Like, as you say, it's it's Thackeray's show, yeah. but like, I am so on Algie's side in almost every scene. And he's he's self-destructive too with his brawling. I loved what you were saying, Joey. He's, it's like he's, he's literally caught between these two worlds. You know, he's this black American man who's been educated, you know, overseas and, and is this amazing doctor, but he can't fit in in 1900 in upper class New York society where his his station would be if he were white he he has a hard time fitting in he gets looks right because of how sometimes how he's he's so well dressed or from you know african american is black american people in his hotel or wherever it is he's staying he doesn't quite fit in either world and yet like there's nowhere else to go you really feel that struggle meanwhile you see how how smart he is and how good at his job he is and and how you know he has to be better than thackeray in so many ways just in order to survive he can't be the same kind of self-destructive narcissist that thackeray is or or he just wouldn't he wouldn't make he has to be kind of be perfect in order to just to be good enough to get into the hospital one of my favorite moments regarding his character is when they won't let him perform a surgery that he co-authored and they go and like break into the guy's <laughs> office and steal the paper and it's like in French and they're like maybe we should just ask Algernon and they're like why it's like well he his name is on the paper just just you know like like you're saying he is so capable and he has to fight just to like do the most menial thing it's just oh man you know, I love it too how one of the moments early on when I realized how sophisticated the show was going to be in its writing and its structure was when you think at the end of maybe it's the end of maybe the first episode or maybe it's the end of the second episode and you think, oh, so we've introduced that Thackeray doesn't want this black man to be his assistant chief of surgery or deputy chief of surgery, whatever it is, his right hand man, but he's clearly the most qualified. And so how long is it going to be till he ends up in the ER with Thackeray? Like, oh, this is going to happen at the end of the first episode or episode two, and then it's going to be their story. And that's not how it happens at all. It takes episodes for him to get invited in, which I think is so smart because what, one of the things that that told me is that this is not a show that's going to take the racism of the time, the institutional and structural and systematic racism of the time lightly. Like it's not just going to be, oh, he, look, you see at the end of the first episode, he's so great. So here he comes into the ER. Like he, he really, really has to earn it. And the, there's a great scene where he set up this clinic in the basement, the secret clinic for other black patients who aren't allowed in the main part of the Nick, and he's been he's been sort of taking care of them down there. And Thackeray discovers it, and he's just furious. He's going to throw him out, and it's only when he sees that he's invented this. It's the suction device, right? It's this like automatic suction thing. That, and then the hernia paper, like the one-two punch. 
Right. Which is exactly the kind of stuff that Thackeray is into, is the invention. And he sees the kindred spirit in him in that moment. But my God, it takes forever in the show to get there in the best, most sort of delicious way. And I think it's a really, really sophisticatedly structured show in its first season. The only thing... So, like, I agree with everything you just said. The only thing that doesn't really quite work for me yet, and I wonder if they're building it to a thing in the second season, which we will find out soon enough, I'm not fully on board with Dr. Everett Gallinger. His thing doesn't work for me. And I don't know how you guys feel, but his being preempted for this promotion by the Black Doctor that everybody hates, that the board basically required they hire or whatever. I don't think his story is very interesting. I think that toward the end, as you know, so he sort of loses his wife, and it, he loses his baby, and then he loses his other baby, and then he loses his wife, all in the span of like an episode and a half or whatever. Like I think that they're sort of setting him up for like a man with nothing to lose in season two, which I think will be interesting. I also just found out while we were recording this episode that his wife is played by Zoe Kazan's younger sister, which I think is pretty cool. I did not know that. But I don't know how you guys feel about him, but you know, as as much as I like everything else about the show and everything that all the pre you're just heaping on it, Tobin. Like, I don't like his stuff. And he's more prominent than a lot of other characters. It just doesn't work for me. If I could jump to that defense real quick. It seems to me that he would normally be the protagonist of this kind of show. That dashing young white male doctor who is under the tutelage, you know, who's brash and is like he's set up to be the, the paragon of what society expects at this time. He should be at the pinnacle. And what the show has done is inverted that and said, you know what? That may have been society's expectation, but we're going to show you what's actually going on with this guy, which is that he's just going to get dragged through the mud. Like we are just going to turn him inside out. You know, it's not the most fun stuff to watch. And I don't know where it's going to head either. But although if you think about where the season one ends, if Thackeray's out of commission and they're going to move the Nick and he's clearly going to be for that, I would guess, like, is he get to be, does he get to be in charge then? Are they going to put him in charge of surgery then? Like that could be a, a fascinating sort of thing. They're setting him up to then be the sort of, to be more of a, of a, as you say, nothing to lose kind of villain. I don't know. Or maybe not. Who knows? This show could take it any, anywhere. But I, I think that there is something kind of interesting going on with that character. Every time I looked at him, he looked like Christopher Nolan to me. Yeah, I'm going to come kind of down the middle here. What I like about his character is he's more of a window into the rest of society and the world than the other two doctors. Like, I feel like Thackeray spends most of his time studying and then eventually with Nurse Lucy or, you know, in the opium dens. You know, he doesn't really attend a lot of brunches or luncheons. I think there's one that they all go to together. But, you know, through Everett, like, he goes home, we see, like, a lot of his family life, you know, and his wife and everything that happens with her. So I think he's a good sort of window into what the domestic nature of a relationship with a doctor might be. And it's like what Bertie's dad says when Bertie's like, oh, I have my eye on a nurse. And he's like, well, she'll only be a nurse until you're, you know, married, and then she'll be at home with the kids and stuff. So it's like, like showing an angle of family life from back then that we're not getting really from any other perspective. I appreciate it for that. I think that's interesting. Now, I would like to see him do more than just fight Algernon. He is very unhinged, <laughs> but I do think that he serves a purpose. I think he serves a purpose, too. I just didn't know what that purpose was until episode eight or nine. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah. was, like, there, yeah. and I feel like he was just sort of, like, this impotent white man. He was the one who was supposed to get the job. Well, there's that, too. Yeah, like, the idea of not only being overlooked for promotion, but by Algernon, you know, an African-American guy. <laughs> like, I mean, I think it's good because it keeps the tension 
around where everyone else is sort of relaxing around Algernon like Everett never does. You know, he's always a rem- he's like that constant reminder. But I kind of like that. I, I think of like leaving him floundering sort of for the first like six, seven seasons of the show, I think is a statement. I think that's a, really about something. I think that that's, again, it's not my favorite thing to watch in the show. And maybe they could have found, they could have found other things to do. I'm not like in love with his storyline or anything. But I, I think that it's in a meta sense, it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting way to go. Yeah, I like that. And I also feels like everything in this series is set up or done for a reason, which I mean, it should yeah. be the case in pretty much anything that's good. And he's there to sort of be the inside look at the racist outside world, kind of. And I was so glad that when I looked on IMDb at the episodes that by far the most highly rated episode was the one that I was just like, oh, this one's really good, was the Get the Rope episode, yeah. which is the race riot episode, basically. I was like, oh, my God, like the show was really good. And I was really enjoying it. But then that was the first time where I literally couldn't take my eyes off the screen. I was like, no, this is special. And just like everything, you know, of all the shots in the series, everything graphic, everything gruesome, everything beautifully shot. Like the one that's going to be like burned into my brain, at least for now, is Algernon hiding under that gurney. Yeah, yeah. As he's being pushed through the street. We figure he's probably not going to get beat up or murdered because, like, that's not what the show is. That would be, like, a whole different where we're going. But, like, the fact that that threat is there and that we hear Nurse Elkins, whoever's pushing him, you know, basically saying, oh, no, like, there's people in here. Lepers. Yeah, well, leprosy, yeah. <laughs> Lepers. Right, like, uh, you know, time to kill, right, Mike, all the way back from Cage Club. Leprosy. <laughs> but the fact that, like, we see him and, like, it's just on him. And, like, it's it's following him, like, we hear, like, conversations again. You know, like we were talking about earlier with a camera on just a certain person. The fact that, like, everything about that episode was clicking for me and that especially where just we see the terror on his face. He doesn't know what's going to happen. We sort of feel that he's probably going to be safe, but, like, also he might not be safe. You know, they might just kill somebody off here. Like, who knows? And, like, that was, like, that was incredible to me. Yeah, one thing I really like about that episode, too, is when everyone's huddled in the basement, it's one of the few moments we sort of get the whole ensemble together on screen, you yeah. know? So yeah, yeah. That, and that is sort of like, I realized that in that moment. I'm like, wait a minute, the gang's all here. Like, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know that I would have picked up on that in a lesser crafted show, you know? But since I've been invested in just about everybody's storyline and, like, I feel like everyone could be the lead if they needed to in their own show, then when they're all together, I noticed it and it meant something in that moment. I'm like, wow, like, they're all on the same page here. That's really cool because they don't even realize it or they might not know it because they don't always talk to each other and know each other's business, but we do. And we know in that moment that they've united and that's a really great moment in that episode. It's so satisfying, and the show seems to understand that, too. Like, it felt to me watching it like the show, because the, the, the camera kind of pauses in that moment a little bit as you're sort of looking at this tableau of all these people, and you can kind of hear the show saying, hey, look at this. We got, like, a traditional here's everybody in the show all together scene, which is by, you know, society standards at this time is just not going to happen. And I think that that's really fun to watch them sort of work that all out. My fear for Algae as he's hiding under the gurney is, I, yeah, I, I didn't think they would kill him, but all they need to do is break his hands, and that would irrevocably end his sort of life as he knows it, right? Like a surgeon's hands are... And we know how important they are, because when Everett punches Algernon, Thackeray, like, flips out. He's like, don't do that. He's like, next time, kick him. Like, you can't lose your hands. <laughs> and, like, that's just, like, it's so wonderful. But, like, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, break his hands. You don't need to hit his face. And that's what I think, like, every time that he gets into a fight, you're like, oh, no, don't yeah, do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. That's really interesting to me, like, 
been trying to understand him from that angle like why is he getting himself into these fights like i know he's trying to prove something but i love that about him but i wince every time because i think of that he's he's putting his not just his life on his line but his livelihood you could probably still be a surgeon if you break your foot but like yeah your hands man yeah, it feels to me, if you look at the comparison of how he, how the, and this actor's great, Andre Holland is so good in this role, and the moral center in so many ways of, of a lot of the show, and he carries that, you know, very sort of compassionately. But as you see the way he, the actor is sort of physically carrying himself, like when he's in the hospital, it's, it's that whole thing I was talking about earlier, where he, because he's black, he has to be perfect. And so he has to hold himself, you know, he holds himself very still, and he turns his head very calmly, and he, you know, he does let his voice get high. He doesn't shout until he needs to. He's more comfortable in the space, you know? Like, he's he's kind of caged himself in order to get through, to get by in, quote-unquote, polite society. So he has to let out all that other energy somewhere. And I think part of it is, I think that's I think that's part of it. You know, it reminds me a little bit of, of some of the descriptions, not to get, you know, too political here, but of the way Obama had to act, right? That there was a sense in which you have to be, there's a reason there's, you know, you, you have to be um, cool and composed and because there's a there are connotations to black male anger that you know are very threatening in this show for sure and i think that he has to let that aggression out somewhere and it comes out in these other scenes and he does continually prove himself to be a supreme badass in those moments you know yeah. i mean except when <laughs> yeah, he true. picks on the incredible hulk at the end basically and like his last fight when they, that is such a godfather moment yeah. where they're cross-cutting between the wedding and then his back alley fight and the guy he's fighting is just a monster like he's sitting down in a chair and he's still taller than algae it's crazy did you guys see who plays cornelia robertson have you looked her up no i don't know a lot of these people except obviously thackeray i mean clive owens i know him very well Uh, the one guy i really recognized instantly was matt frewer who played christensen who blows his brains out in the opening Uh, he was max headroom way back in the day oh no but he grew an amazing actor beard that he uses to full effect in this show oh that's amazing i i didn't i didn't recognize him that's amazing Chickerling Jr. was the only other guy I recognized. He was in he was in a Soderbergh movie. He was in Haywire. He's the kid, kid in the yeah, car. Yeah, kid in the right? car. Yeah, yeah. What's weird to me about the show is that I'm watching the show and I'm like, do I recognize that person? I'm like, no, no, no. The show's from forever ago. And I'm like, wait, no, it's from like two years ago. For some reason in my brain, it happened a long time ago, but it's recent. And so I didn't really pay attention to who's who. So who is Cornelia? Who who plays her? One wouldn't really know. I just, just the, it was just interesting to me looking her up. She done a lot of work, but uh, the, she's Mark Rylance's stepdaughter. Oh, okay. Because I see the last name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, you know Andre Holland came to my attention in both in Selma and then also in Moonlight. Moonlight, right? Moonlight, yeah. And he has that. There's a similar sort of calm, smart, morally centered. <laughs> he does that well. Like he hits the Venn diagram of that so well and warm. You know, without being sort of like he's tough. I don't know. Like he's intense, but not like threatening. He's very striking. Like he could kick your ass, but he's not going to. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I, I find him to be a very, very compelling actor. And it's it's fun to see all these actors you know, who maybe you look them up and you say, Oh yeah, I do know you from something else. I have seen you somewhere. And I think that they're all you know, the show is tailoring to their strengths in a lot of ways. It's a smart way to do this show where you're not filling it up with a bunch of stars that you know from other things. I do think this is maybe my favorite Clive Owen performance though. 
He is so fucking good in this show. I can't believe yeah, how he's yeah. able to keep it up in this show. Like, I mean, he might look a little like Edgar Allan Poe, but like he makes that look his own by the end of the series. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm constantly just feel like I'm watching some great, great work whenever he's on screen. I still think I like him more in Shoot 'Em Up, but like he's got so much more to his character here than in that where he's just basically live action Bugs Bunny. But yeah, I mean, I always think of Children of Men. I mean, I know he's known for so much, but yeah, that's the other one. Yeah, I just it's it's always interesting to me, like because I think of him as a movie star, you know, and the transition from movie to TV or TV to movie is it could be tricky, and I don't know that everyone can pull it off. And it just maybe is TV like his proper medium. It might be, you know, I just think he can sustain a character really well like over the course of the show not everybody is capable of doing that in the lead i think i'd rather watch him play one character for a really long time than a bunch of characters for like 90 minutes yeah it's a thing that happens to to like former leading men who are better actors than a lot of leading men parts allow them to be and their calling is something else and you know i think about him in closer the mike nichols movie um or you think about him in he's one of the assassins in the born identity he pops up in things sort of unexpectedly and he's such a haggard at his best he's such a sort of darkly haggard presence you know i think leading movie star roles are hard to come by. I remember there was some talk that he might be Bond somewhere along the way back in the day. Croupier, I think, was his first was his big break. That's the thing I remember him first knowing his name from in a British movie. But he's such a good actor. And as you say, he's able to find new ways to do old things. You know, like this is a medical show about a drug addict. We have seen that before, but he's able to sort of make such a distinct character out of that, that while I agree he's not my favorite character, I, I love to watch what he does with this part. So what I think is kind of interesting about his involvement here, because something Mike said about people making the transition, like you think of him as a movie star, but like, you know, we see all the time now, especially in the last couple of years, maybe starting with this, I don't know, around the same time, that we see a lot of actors who are predominantly known for movies signing up for like a year or two of television. Here, he and Steven Soderbergh both signed up to do two years of this show. And the thinking was that after two years, they were like, whatever was going to happen to the character or whatever, I don't know, they were going to sort of move on to a different focus and a different director, sort of a different style, but keep it in that world. And so the two-year run ended, and then Cinemax was like, we love the show, but we're going to go back to our action series that are internationally produced. So it was a money thing. It was like, a, a, I guess, a branding thing, whatever. But I like that shift where Clive Owen's like, yeah, I'll take two years of my life instead of doing like, you know, two movies or three movies or whatever. I'll just do 20 episodes of this thing with an amazing director. And like, I'm sure Steven Soderbergh did the same thing. I'm going to take like, you know, we were saying on the last episode, I think that he was getting bored, right, Tobin? Like you said that he was getting bored with movies and that he wanted to do something different. And so here he is for, he knows he's going to have like a home for two years and just do this. And he does not feel bored here. Soderbergh feels like he is on his game. This feels like, this is exactly why I love Soderbergh. Like, I love the way he reinvigorates himself. He sets himself a whole new challenge. And it's like, okay, I'm done with movies. I'm going to go paint. And it's like, oh, but this TV show, I'm going to go try and make this period TV show feel very contemporary. And and then it sort of refreshes him. And I love that he is so rarely boring. And he just, for this first season anyway, because I have not seen any of the second yet, but he, he just feels like he's so, so alive here. It's funny, like, I, watching the show, and I'm like, wow, there's a nice sort of, like, it's falling into place, you know? I'm like, as episode three into four, I'm like, okay, it feels like I'm in a groove here. But then, <laughs> by episode eight, when they've, like, run out of cocaine in the state of New York, or, like, the ship, and he's withdrawing, 
go back and watch that episode it f- makes you kind of feel like your skin is crawling like you know right when you feel sort of like secure I, he like pulls out all of his tricks again and he's like no 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 like don't get too easy here like i'm still i'm still gonna like play around with stuff and move things like i'm gonna try and get you in the head of this guy who needs this drug in him i don't know it's just that episode i just noticed like all these close-ups and and shallow points of view and just shots of thackeray is just like really interesting he's he's like i'm gonna craft this episode completely differently if i want to he's not like resting back at all you know it, i was like oh the, sh- the show is on autopilot at this point it's like no it's constantly growing and changing and and yeah, yeah. finding itself and refinding itself and shifting and doing what it wants to instead of doing the conventional thing to do it in its own way and it's just very nice to watch that it just kept re-entertaining me each episode finding something about the way it's made or, or something about a performance or something about a plot point or something it's, it just keeps being entertaining and changing and shifting and, and i'm really looking forward to uh, season two now and I think a lot of that has to do not only just with the showrunner, but also having the same director yes, in every episode. Right, you know right. what I mean? He also was the DP and the editor, of course, you know, as <laughs> Peter Andrews and Marianne Bernard. But I was I was looking back, so I was like, I wonder how many times this has happened, because I didn't think it happened a lot. And I really do feel like whether it was just, you know, like a the prestige the illusionist or dante's peak and volcano or whatever where like lots of things happen at the same time just because they happen at the same time but it feels like this might have kicked off this little stretch where like you know true detective the whole first season was directed by carrie fukunaga you know that also brought woody harrelson and matthew mcconaughey to tv for the first time or at least the first time in a while i mean we have twin peaks the return all directed by david lynch sam esmail directed all of season two of mr robot louis did his whole show which you know will not happen again. Peter Atencio did all of Key and Peel, and he also did Keanu. This guy, Greg Yatanes, I don't know how to pronounce his name, he did Quarry, which was on Cinemax last year. So I feel like there's all these modern examples. But then I was also looking back, and what I did not know, which actually surprises me, well, one thing that doesn't surprise me is that Edgar Wright did all of Space, but Space was only like six episodes. Space was also great. How I Met Your Mother, Pamela Fryman directed 196 of those 208 episodes. Wow. David Trainer directed every episode of that 70 show except for the pilot. Whoa. Uh, James Burroughs did most, if not all, of both Will and Grace and Cheers. Cheers, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow. Oh, and the other one on my list, another recent one, Big Little Lies, another example of getting Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and, you know, serious actor turned comedic actor turned serious actor again, Adam Scott, to <laughs> the TV screen. But season one was directed by John Mark Vallee, and then season two going to be directed by... Andrea Arnold. So, like, there is this precedent now of a director doing an entire series, and while it had happened before the Nick, you know, decades before the Nick even, like, I feel like he was at the start of this return of prestige TV and, you know, a prestige Hollywood director or acclaimed director, whatever, sort of helming a show for a year or more. A Best Director Oscar winner making all of a season of TV is not something that happened before you had 10 episodes seasons on premium cable like you're totally right it's a confluence of all these events james burroughs who i remember from his cheers days like that's what they did like they did tv and i'm not knocking that or 
or making any kind of hierarchy there, but it's a different animal when it's a single camera show like this that's directed, like you should say, a Holly, an A-list Hollywood director. That's It makes sense, doesn't it, when you have these shorter seasons to have an overarching point of view, not just from a showrunner, but also from a director. Yeah, and if I recall, I mean, that became big about a decade ago where the UK model, as they I think referred to right. it as, right? The shorter seasons, The Office over there really drove it home for American audiences where it was like, we don't need 25 episodes a season. We're good with like 8 to 12 or something like that. And right. a lot of shows, well, a lot of writers, I think were grateful for that, but a lot of shows picked up that model and were like, yeah, let's shorten these seasons. You know, let's compact this and just tell the story we want to tell instead of, you know, all these diversions or stalling or like that's the like this show never feels like it's stalling or anything like that or just, you know, placeholding or getting us to the next show show I love a recent show Preacher as much as I love it it's a lot like the comic where there's just filler issues in episodes where we're just dawdling and waiting or whatever I don't know and then you'll get a great episode two or three ones later but I never feel that here and it feels like a wave that Soderbergh would look to surf right like look at this this guy directed an entire run of a TV show like I want to do that you know like it just seems like a Soderbergh thing to try a guy who works this much like maybe just to see if he has the endurance the stamina to pull something like that off and he is in that position being retired and having prestige to now instead of go back to film school and do something like a bubble or a full frontal like he could do a tv show i feel like there's just as much chance of failure but i think more maybe chance of success from where he is at this point at least i feel like he definitely succeeded with what he was trying to do I don't think there's more or less chance of failure or success on TV versus movies. I think it's just the fact that, like, this guy was in a groove to the point where, like, we were, like, blown away week to week. You know what I mean? Like, he's in the, he's better than he's ever been in his career. If he cares about this and, like, the other parts fall into place, this is going to turn out well. We have to point out that, again, you know, he does two seasons of this. He produces The Girlfriend Experience. And then less than two years later, he's already back doing Mosaic for HBO. You know, it's it, maybe this is his new thing. Who knows? But, like, I think had this gone differently like had this not played out well which i don't know how it would have unless you know some crazy external forces or whatever came into play but like i think that you know it's got to be more rewarding to be able to tell a 10-hour story versus a 90-minute or two like i'm sure that there's many positives to just telling a two-hour story and being done with it but like if you love the world and you love the stories that you're telling and like tobin was saying when he read the scripts he's like oh i need to be a part of this if you love it of course you want to watch a 10-hour thing just like for a viewer watching a good movie is great but like watching a good tv series where you can really get into the mind of the character that's even better yeah i think he's a smart director in terms of knowing what the medium for the story is you know some stories can sustain over 20 episodes and other stories you're only going to sustain over 90 or 120 minutes as we said from the very very beginning from sex size and videotape he came onto the scene speaking fluent film language film grammar and part of that is structure and internally within the scene as well as over the course of a, of a movie or in this case a show you know one of the neat things i like too about what he's done here is that some of these episodes are very short. Like there's one that's 30 something minutes, right? And then as other ones go to like 48, there didn't seem to be a, as close to a standard length as you would often get. 
getting to play in this new medium allowed him to, to experiment in ways that if it had failed, I think people would have just, he wouldn't have been as big a knock on him as if he'd had some kind of giant movie failure because it's just like, oh, he just tried TV and, you know, it didn't work for him. You know, to be fair, his earlier episode, like foray into TV, you know, episodic television. The worst thing he ever did. Yeah, was really, really bad. So everybody kind of dismisses that and he goes back to making movies. So I th- I th- my guess is that would have happened here. It would be really cool if he does like three movies and then two seasons of a new TV show. Three movies or two movies and yeah, then another, yeah. like that would be incredible. I don't see it happening, but I mean, if anyone can do it. This guy, I don't think he sleeps. I don't know where he finds the time, but more power to him. This is a whole other topic that I could talk about for a while and sort of the frustrations of TV because, you know, as many movies as I watch, I watch even more TV, I think. And, like, I really do admire, like you were saying, Tobin, you know, the way that he plays with sort of episode lengths. But the frustration comes, I think, on broadcast TV, there's a reason for it. Yeah, right. On Netflix, there's a different thing. Cinemax is like, okay, you have 10 episodes season one, 10 episodes season two. So, like, you sort of have that. But I feel like if you have a story to tell, you know, on broadcast, it makes sense because you have to, like, you have to block off, you have to sell advertising or what, I mean, not Cinemax sells advertising or whatever, but, like, you have certain hours to fill. Netflix, you know, not that he's doing a Netflix series, but, like, the reason I don't really particularly like the Marvel shows on Netflix is because for some reason, they all have decided that they need to be 13 episodes at an hour long each. It's like, no, like, that's not, like, you don't have those stories to tell. And I feel like there is this shift you know, on broadcast TV of like having shorter episodes or like on premium TV of having shorter episodes, like, you know, the 38 minute episode or whatever, or sometimes Game of Thrones will have like an hour yeah, and 40 yeah. minute episode yeah. and like HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and stars, it'll be able to accommodate that. And then also sort of trickles over to like FX and AMC too. Cause like basically when you watch like a Ryan Murphy show, like American Horror Story, American Crime Story, whatever, FX is basically like, Hey, this is like, you're our number one moneymaker, whatever you want the length to be. And like, that's cool. Like, I like now this upswing in directors having control or creators or whatever, having control over the length of the story they're telling. I don't think that there's like a wasted episode here, but I wonder if he was able to do this on Netflix where like it didn't matter if there were 10 episodes or not, would there have been all 10? Would he have broken them out a little bit differently? I don't know. I like that each episode sort of has its own focus but also still plays into the bigger themes. I think that works really well here. I'm just sort of curious, as like a thought experiment, how it would have come about if he wasn't required or not that he's the only person there. I'm just using him as like the surrogate, but like if he didn't have to do 10 of them. I hear what you're saying. What do you need to tell this story? Here's the story. And now let's build it from the ground up. Right. Maybe it would have been eight episodes. Maybe it would have been... 15. You never know. And they could all have been the exact same length if that's what he really wanted. I mean, he does a great job of working within the confines that he's given. You know, they said 10 episodes and he gave 10 really good episodes of a season. So I think it worked out well. There's not much about this show that makes me say nowadays it can't be on like amc or fx or or one of those channels like it's definitely can't the way it is but i mean you just trim a few things here and there and i think you know it's it's close like one of the good things about television and the direction it is going is that you know executives are trusting these creators more like i i think of like that biker show i never watched the sons of anarchy anarchy. but like that became an enormous creator driven hit and it just seemed like the network left him 
alone and just do what you want to do. Tell the story as much. And then he was like, it's time to end the show. And everyone wanted more. And he's like, no, the story's over. There's just like a good sort of sense from the executives too, being like, you know, yes, we have these regulations, you know, they have to be this, that, and the other thing. But within that, really give us what you want. Like we want, we're interested in what the story should be as opposed to what we want to force it to be. They're interested in seeing what the natural progression of the story is going to come out to be as well. My understanding is that often it's part of the pitch by whoever's pitching the show is that this is a 10 episode, two season show, or this is a 13 episode show, or and that that is usually part of a whoever the creator is, whether it's the director matched with writers or just the writers or producers or whoever it is, that that's very often an early, like it gets kind of decided usually more early. Whereas then you end up with something like Twin Peaks, which is sort of a, a case to itself where it sounds like they had the, all the material and then they decided how many episodes they're going to break it up into, you know, then it's like, you know, which again, he had, you know, all the, he had control over that, but there's a, usually that's some kind of negotiated thing. I don't think that there's usually necessarily a lot of someone saying it has to be 10 episodes. And my guess is that they went in saying, look, this is going to be 10 episodes. Like, don't forget Soderbergh is, he's a formalist. He likes to work. He likes to have structure. He likes to have, we're going to make this work in 10 episodes. Like there's a crispness to that. And then within that, they get to sort of make them as long as or as short as they need to be and that just that meshes with my taste really well and you know what else meshes with my taste is this wonderful wonderful score by cliff martinez so good which we talked about (laughs) briefly before we started recording but what i love about it is that it feels so out of the era that it feels perfect for the era like it's computery and like i feel like at times it sounded like he incorporated like iphone ringtones sort of <laughs> like toward the end of the series like i felt like i was like because I, I know my phone is it's always on vibrate but i was like is my phone like because it, it sounded like not that that's what they were going for but it was like that all sort of chiptune thing that cliff martinez has sort of not necessarily chiptune but like that kind of you know computery 80s synth computer video game whatever like that just feels like it should not be long here and yet is so perfect here and we've seen cliff martinez collaborate with soderbergh a handful of times already and i I get the sense that he's just like hey this is what we're doing and he's like all right cool i got it and he just came back and just like that's what it was yeah exactly and in fact the way because i listened to an interview with him with cliff martinez about this and he talked about you know being sort of sent the first i think sent the first episode or maybe it was just being told about the show and he's like researching period um compositions and period orchestrations and period arrangements and all this kind of stuff and then Soderbergh's like, no, I want it to sound extremely contemporary. Like, do it all, you know, do it all computers and synth and stuff. And he's like, okay. And then he just did it. And then what he would do is create a whole bunch of music. He'd watch the episodes, create a bunch of music, and then send it to Soderbergh. Soderbergh would chop it up and put it in whatever episode whenever he wanted. And he would sometimes call him and say, hey, can you make something like a little more aggressive? So he'd just like make this aggressive bit and he'd like send it back to him and he would put it in the show. Like it was a way he sort of would for this. I don't know that it worked this way in the movies, but for the show, Cliff Martinez would sort of deliver these musical, you know, pieces, cues, and he and Soderbergh would chop them up or slow them down or you know, do whatever and like stick them in wherever he thought that they worked the best, which I think is fascinating. What, a, what an interesting way for a composer and a director to collaborate. That's an awesome story. I love that method. That's great. I'm so glad this is not period accurate music. I don't yeah, think I could yeah, take it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just not varied <laughs> enough and it's, oh man. But the one thing I kept thinking of about I don't think it's what they were intending but just something that got into my head like the music sounded futuristic 
and these are the men of the future, you know, like Thackeray and Algernon and all these guys at the Nick, like, and the surgeons, just surgeons in general, like, they're on the forefront. They are forging the future kind of thing. So, like, kind of like watching the shows, like, oh, it's almost like that to me. I don't think that was an intention or anything, but maybe there was something going on where, you know, if we have this contemporary contradictory score to what they're looking at, it can sort of make you say, like, oh, what does this have to do with today? Like, you could start thinking about yeah, the way yeah, yeah, medicine's right, practiced right. today. And this, so, like, it gives you a reference almost to where we are now as, and then we can reorient ourselves visually into the past. It's such a smart thing because as with any good period, you know, show or movie, like, it's not period to the people in it. To the people in it, it's contemporary. It's present day, yeah. Yeah, it's present day for them. It's cutting edge for them. It, and it's just such a smart way to reinforce that, I think. I think you're totally right. I have three quotes written down that I love. <laughs> one of them was the one that Tobin sent to us over Twitter, which is, in episode 10, nothing breaks a man like a good cock punch, which is <laughs> very true. The other one was the one that I, I tweeted out was, Nurse Baker, another word from you about anything but the job at hand, and I will sew your mouth and nostrils shut and happily watch you asphyxiate. Like, okay. <laughs> and then the third one that I just I, I just thought was so funny was, our budget does not allow for pregnant prostitutes, so we'll just have to make do with what we see here. The, the cock punch one is not, but the other two are Thackeray, and it's just like... I think, again, just sort of like Dr. House, like he's always got the perfect thing to say. And like, it's a little unbelievable, but it's also like, this is also kind of the coolest guy in this era. And it's like, okay, like I'm okay with him having the wittiest and funniest and best things to say and always knowing exactly what to say or what to do. And it's just, it's also just really fun, great writing. There's actually one thread that kind of gets dropped, but while we were there, I was really fascinated by it. You know, the the girl from his past that with the nose. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. During that thread, we see a flashback when they were together and just like how happy he was as a person, you know, kind of how contradicted to how just straight up miserable he always is in the present day and everything like that. So it's just interesting to see that there is this life to this guy that's still in there. Like, I feel it in there, even though he's not singing and dancing. But like we see, I'm so glad we get those little flashbacks. And we get a couple also with Christensen, where he's introducing him to cocaine and explaining like that's how he stays awake and everything like that. Uh, yeah. But but I do kind of wish that, that she came back. Hopefully she comes back in season two, because I feel like if we had resolved a little more of that storyline, it could have given us like that other dimension to Thackeray too. Like to see like, oh man, like he wasn't always this competitive, you know, like he used to kind of be like normal, like work normal hours, be like a normal guy. But then like along the way somewhere he got obsessive and that's what drives him and ultimately starts to destroy him. No, I'm really curious to see sort of how long in season two he'll be out of commission. Like, I wonder if we're going to have a time jump or right. my guess, not knowing anything about season two. I actually, did, I sort of, I, I spoiled the end of season two <gasps> reading something I thought had no spoilers. I know, I know. I'm not going to say anything. But like, not knowing anything about the season two, aside from the very end, just in terms of TV conventions and if, if nothing else, we've, we've seen that Steven Soderbergh is anything but conventional. I get the sense that we're going to sort of have like a bit of a time jump, maybe a couple episodes where it's like split between 
between him, him at rehab and the hospital without him, especially now that we know that the hospital is shuttering its doors and moving uptown. So maybe we skip all of that and maybe we just go uptown. Like, I don't know. Like, there's so many different ways the second season could go. And I also, like, wouldn't be surprised if he's just not at the Nick at all in season two. Like, I mean, that would be a little bit of a surprise. But, like, I can see an entire season where, like, he's sort of existing sort of outside of that world. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past this show and I wouldn't be against seeing how that progressed. Like, just the idea of his absence from the hospital, but still seeing his storyline you know, and how he's existing outside of all of that from that life. Yeah, I have no idea really where they're going to pick back up from, but I just know I love the final shot of this season, you know? It's like you said, they're sort of telegraphing it. You know it's something that they're waning him off the cocaine with at the at the rehab center. But don't worry, Mike. It's from Bear, the aspirin company. It's totally fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. The look on his face and then the rack focus to the bottle of heroin was just perfect it was sublime i mean like i felt like i got a shot in the arm to go out on for this season like it was so gratifying i feel like in anything that was more poorly made than this i would have groaned at it because like to me i mean i don't know if you guys were expecting it, but like i was like this show would not really exist if he had a happy life right like there's so much less interesting about a lead character even if he's not our hero but about our lead character our protagonist if he's just happy all the time Oh, plus we know how arcane, like, treatments are, you know? Like, we've seen what they do at sanitariums, and this is just a step up from that, so... Right, and so I, I figured it was going to be something, and it had to be something that we as the audience knew yeah, without right. explanation what right. it was, Right. and so I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And like I, was, like I was saying, you know, if it was a poorly made show or, like, a movie I wasn't on board with or whatever, I'd have been like, oh, like, I'm, I'm done, like, I'm out, like, that's exactly what I thought I was going to do. But even though here it was what I thought, I'm like, well, I want to see where this goes, especially because now, you know, like we're not waiting eight months for the <laughs> yeah. next season. We can just finish recording this and go upstairs and I can just watch the next episode. Yeah, I think it worked too because he doesn't do a lot of that sort of, not hacky, but kind of, you know, like obvious or hokey reveal. Like there's one, there's a strong one in the first episode that I mentioned earlier where he has to inject, you know, into his sex vein, the cocaine to get himself <laughs> like out of his withdrawal. I feel like, that's kind of a, of a shocking reveal to end the first episode, like on a bang, like we're going to end episode one on a button. And I kind of feel like there's a bit of like a symmetry here with the final episode. And he hasn't been shooting things in this manner. Like I almost felt like an entire shift when we got into that bedroom scene, the way it's just one shot from behind. We don't even see, I think, Thackeray's face from when he enters that building. It's very interesting the way it's shot until he puts his head on the pillow. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think he's telegraphing us that whole sequence intentionally and earned because yeah he hasn't really he's been trickier the whole time you know so here in the final moments he's sort of playing with it yeah it's you know i make i don't make fun i i kid you joey about your not watching trailers this is a case where i i am avoiding everything i can about season two i don't know where it's gonna go you guys have laid out a bunch of as you say like theories that i'd be great with i'm just i'm excited for them to take me somewhere you know like wherever they want to take the show i am on board to go yeah next week as you're listening to this we will tackle all of season two as of right now none of us have seen an episode of season two yeah. so we have no idea where it's gonna go very excited i hope it's as good you know i hope there's no sophomore slump you know the, the quote that i read from cinemax didn't seem like it was you know it wasn't as good as season one or anything it was just like we want to go in a different direction so like i have every belief that this season two is going to be as good as season one and if that's the case this is a really great show that i would highly recommend to a lot of yeah. people and i was looking at my list and i think i would put this maybe like fourth or fifth like yeah. after 
out of sight after Ocean's Eleven and after Haywire, or maybe around Haywire. Like, there's the two movies that I love unconditionally now. And then there's the grouping of, like, Haywire and Aaron Brockovich, The Informant, and this, where I'm just like, it's all really, really good. Yeah, I agree. Right smack in the middle of the top ten. That's where I, where I would put this. So far, so far. Yeah, I also think it's super strong. I, I wondered them knowing they had two seasons, if this is all crafted together in a way that watching it as you know close together as we are, we're going to get something more out of it. But I'm very anxious to get to it and to see what's coming up next. I've got two other things I wanted to say real quickly. Go for one it. One of them is that the, the cockpunch line was written by the only writer who's not one of the two creators who's credited as a writer on the show, a guy named Stephen Katz, whose first two credits are episodes of that Fallen Angels TV show. Neither of them directed by Soderbergh, but that's where he got his start uh, as a writer. He also wrote Shadow of the Vampire, which is a movie that I that I dig from, uh, from 2000. Produced by Cage uh, Production Company. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Saturn Films? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Have you not seen that movie, Joey? Shadow of a Vampire? Oh, no, no, I haven't. I haven't. No, yeah, no, no. You, you should. It's it's Looney Tunes. It's, it's, uh, it's worth a watch. The other thing I wanted to say is that I used to live in Brooklyn, and once my wife and my dad and I were at Ikea, and we were lined up to go through the, the register, and there's a woman ahead of us who had a cart loaded with all kinds of little things, little candles, little, like all kinds of stuff, a lot of little, little things. And the person at the, you know, the checkout person asked them, like, what's, like, what you doing? What's this for? She's like, oh, I'm the art director for this, this show. He's like, oh, what show? Oh, it's the Nick. We shoot over here and, you know, and wherever. And like, she was just coming to get supplies and like candles and stuff for the Love show. It. And I, I hadn't, you know, it was before it came out. I'm like, oh, that's a Soderbergh show. I'm like, that's amazing. I love that they're propping up that show with IKEA products. Like, that is hilarious. I know. So I spent some of the show, like, looking to see if I could find anything on the screen that might have come from IKEA. Are you looking for a Fjorgen or a, or a Jornborg? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, right, right. A little unrelated peek behind the curtain, it was that Brooklyn Ikea, where I was with Jordan, Paul, and Clark, where I decided to drive cross-country, eating some Swedish meatballs, when I was like, I don't have a job, I'm going to go do something fun. And that was that Ikea. So lots of big things, Tobin, I can tell you, happening at that Ikea, whether you're meeting art directors or making life decisions. And is that the trip where you stayed at my parents' house? It sure was. There you go. See, it all, it all comes together. Your mom gave me so much food, so much delicious food, both that night that I stayed with her and then also to take on the road. She's like, here, you need food for the road. I was like, all right, cool. And it was amazing. So what a day. Oh, one thing I did want to say, I don't remember. Oh, you were, talk we were talking about that cock punch line again, because in the last episode, one parallel, I think, I don't know if it's accurate or lazy or what, but there's a Mr. Wu in both this and Deadwood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I love the Mr. Wu. I'm, I do love Mr. Wu in both. I, I love the Mr. Wu in Deadwood, too. I have to say, I was giving the edge to Wu from Deadwood until Wu's final moments in this, until Wu kicks fucking ass. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Where he, yeah, he basically, you know, John Wick's with a knife, right? Where he just, like, goes <laughs> yeah. crazy. And, like, I want to see, because I feel like the way that season one ends, I guess also John Wick with a knife is just the raid, right? So, like, he just, he raids 
all those guys. But I feel like season one ends with him like, oh, I'm going to be the guy that you're going to be afraid of next season. And so he's only menacing to one person. He's only menacing to Herman Barrow, but he's this sort of, you know, imposing outside force. So hopefully lots more Mr. Wu in season two. Season Wu. I want to see if Tom Cleary, the ambulance driver, buys himself that motor car to pilot around the city. Oh, yes, yes, totally. So, yeah, so come back next week, see if season two is the season of Woo, see if there's, you know, more ambulance. Let's see what happens to Dr. Thackeray. We don't know if he's going to be in the hospital or if he's going to be in rehab. Who knows? Maybe it's just nun stuff. I don't know. Anything can happen in season two of The Nick. The honeymoon? Are we going to see the honeymoon? <laughs> oh, please. Although, we, we, we're, there's, I feel like there's a little bit, there's something going on there. So we're going to see if maybe, you know, she and Algernon can get together. Who knows? Come back next week for season two. But for all things Cinemakers and all things Cage Club related, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can see all the past episodes of this show. As of the time of this recording, we have two or three remaining of Soderbergh, depending on, you know, timing of some stuff. But we have like almost 30 in the can already. So go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Go listen to all the other shows. Everything fun to do. Cageclub.me, Facebook.com slash Cageclub, and at CageClubPod on Twitter. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I am Tobin Addington. And we will see you next time on Cinemakers. <laughs>